0: This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature.
1: Hello and welcome to The Hindu's on Books podcast. Uh, we're joined by a very, very prolific author who writes really about Russia in a depth and a manner that few others are able to achieve. Mark Galliotti is the author of close to, I think, 30 books which have focused on Russia, most particularly on its leader, Vladimir Putin. His latest, Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine, where he really traces how Putin's wars have really taken him from, if you like, the fall of the Soviet Union and the chaos that seemed to be inside Russia to the two wars in Chechnya, to Georgia, to Syria, to Crimea, and now to the rest of Ukraine. There couldn't be a more topical book that comes out in 2022, but he also ends it with a little bit of his own look at the future. Before we go any further, uh, Mark, thanks so much for speaking with us at the Hindu.
0: No, I'm delighted to be here.
1: Now, you had a book called Putin's Wars, but you nearly didn't have the Ukraine war in it, didn't you?
0: No, exactly. I mean, this was a situation I had finished the manuscript and sent it to the publishers, Two weeks before the actual invasion happened. And so, although it says terrible things about me as a human being, obviously my first thought when the invasion did happen was how terrible for 40 something million Ukrainians. My second thought was actually how terrible for 140 something million Russians. But my third thought was how terrible for me. And therefore, there followed this uh, little frantic moment of uh, negotiation with the publishers. You know, what is the latest I can drop another chapter yeah. in? So, it does have a chapter that was written really taking the situation up to June and trying to look at how it might evolve, even though this has been a conflict that frankly has uh, defied predictions.
1: Absolutely. And in fact, it defied the predictions of even those who really were speaking in Russia. We had so many sort of almost mock the Western wait for a Russian invasion. Of Ukraine and certainly of the kind we saw. Why do you think so many people thought Putin would not do it?
0: Well, look. I mean, I have to hold up my own hands here. I mean, up to about a week before the actual invasion, I only thought the odds were maybe 30 to 40 percent that he would. And I think the answer to that is in part because, as you say, so many within Russia itself were absolutely swearing blind that this wasn't going to happen, up to and including Foreign Minister Lavrov. Now. Although it's always tempting to think of diplomats as people who are sent out to lie for their country. I mean, actually, in practice, it seems that this was because these were people who didn't even know. The decision was made and kept within an incredibly small circle of Putin's own cronies and confidence. That's reason number one. The second reason is, to be blunt, it didn't make sense. And I think this is the interesting thing, because look, I, I regard Putin as a rational actor. But nonetheless, this is a fascinating case study in how a rational actor can make some deeply irrational decisions based on their assumptions and also the information that they receive. I mean, I think from my point of view, look up to the moment that Putin invaded, he was actually winning his conflict with Ukraine. He'd amassed a huge force on Ukrainian borders, but nonetheless, they were in Russian territory, was entirely within international law, and yet under the shadow of that force. The Ukrainian economy was in free fall because who wanted to invest there? You had a stream of Western dignitaries going to Moscow, putting Putin in exactly the position he likes to be, one in which you know, he is in the center and the supplicants are coming to ask him not to invade. And we know that certain European countries were trying to put pressure on the Ukrainians to make concessions to avoid a war. If he really had been this grand geopolitical mastermind, we're sometimes told, Putin would have just let this state of affairs continue. As it was, he invaded, and he invaded because he had convinced himself that Ukraine was not a real country, that the Ukrainians would not resist, and that in a way this would be a scaled-up equivalent of the annexation of Crimea. Now, he was totally wrong in all of his assumptions, but what has now become clear in hindsight is the degree to which the people who knew better within the Russian system, the intelligence community, the generals, the diplomats, the experts, either were not invited to express their views, or were in a political system in which it was clear to them that it would be dangerous to them to do so. And this, this is something that's been developing for years. I remember back in 2015, I was talking to a retired Russian spy who'd said, remember this is seven years ago, we've learned that you do not bring bad news to the Tsar's table. In other words, you don't tell Putin what he doesn't want to hear. And I think this is, this is really where it came back to bite him.
1: So, Mark, I do want to get back to you on just how the war is doing, because, of course, here in India, there are differing perceptions about how well Russia is doing in Ukraine. But I wanted to ask you about how difficult writing this book has been, because, of course, you've always had access to uh, places where very few do in terms of the Russian military, the Kremlin, the security architecture as well. But we did find that even you are now on Putin's sanctions list.
0: Yes, yes. Unfortunately, as of June, I have been sort of barred indefinitely from, from entry. And I think that's I mean, that, that's a real shame. And I must admit, I think it's a very counterproductive one. I mean, I, I do not absolutely regard myself as an enemy of Russia. I may be fiercely opposed to much of what Putin does. But as a country and as a people, I, I regard myself as a, as a great friend of Russia. Yes, look, I mean, up to that point, I traveled to Russia as much as I could, to be honest. One of my particular Pet, pet Peeves is the kind of Russia analyst who scarcely speaks the language and who maybe every few years goes to Moscow for a couple of days, has a couple of meetings with West friendly sort of local academics and then flies back. You, know, you, you need to spend time in the country. You need to talk not just to your contacts at the higher levels, but you need to you know, eavesdrop shamelessly on conversations in the metro and have have chats with people when you're waiting in line at the bus stop or whatever, and I, I, I will I will miss that. But on the other hand, look, we, we live in an interconnected electronic age, and although some of my contacts now, for entirely understandable reasons, for their own safety, don't want to continue to have contact with me, many others do. And after all, look, I, you know, I'm I'm an old hand. I've been doing this not just for years, but for decades. Even though it makes me feel very old, and you know, there are a lot of these people people who I would regard as friends, not just work contacts. So yes, it'll be a bit harder, but it continues.
1: Now to come back to the fascinating picture you have built, not just of uh, Putin himself, but of the wars that he has waged and why he has waged them. One of the interesting things that I think you say, and, and you write as well, is that in the past, Putin really fought wars that he could win. Why do you say that?
0: Well, I think it's interesting that uh, for all the you know sometimes comical macho theatricals around Putin's image, he's actually demonstrated himself to be a very, very cautious operator. If anything, that's sometimes a problem in that he spends too long kind of worrying about whether or not he he should act. and so, if we look at you know whether it was in terms of the internal counterinsurgency war that he fought against the Chechens at the very beginning of his presidency, whether we look at things like the invasion of Georgia, a tiny little country on, on, on Russia's borders, these have all been very limited and controlled operations. And they have all been ones that, frankly, Russia ought to win, and sometimes it didn't win quite as easily as it should. You know, but nonetheless, um, the, the, these were never going to be a challenge to a country with what was regarded as the second most powerful army in the world, and also you know, the resources of more than 140 million people to, to, to back it up. And I think this was this was in some ways a, a problem for Putin, in that precisely, you know, each victory emboldened him a little bit more. Each victory did lead often to a, another wave of military reform. And to be honest, his army as of 2022, looking much, much better than the one he inherited in 2000. But nonetheless, I think it gave him an exaggerated sense of quite what it was capable of. And again, the generals may well have known better. But as it becomes clear, Putin didn't ask his generals. It's a fascinating parallel, frankly, with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, where the politicians convinced themselves that it was both necessary and would be an easy victory even while the generals were metaphorically pulling their hair out, knowing full well that this would be a really problematic war for the Soviets to fight. But no one asked their opinion or no one was willing to give it any credence.
1: Um, If I could ask you on February 22nd or, or just before that, Putin actually had a choice. And what you are referring to is his previous wars. If you looked at the examples of Russia's second Chechnyan war where they came out, Fairly victorious, or the Georgian War, which was so short that really he was able to take uh, both Abkhazia and uh, and Ossetia uh, and not have any kind of repercussions to it. Or even if you look at the Crimean War, where he, you know, sort of isolated just the uh, the Crimean Peninsula and did not at that time look to invade the rest of Ukraine. What do you think changed for Putin? Why why do you think given this, these experiences that you've spoken about at some length in your book showed him a, a path to a possible, if not a victory, but possible ability to to move on from it. That the rest of the world would perhaps look away while, if he had just stopped at, say, Donetsk and Luhansk or one of the other regions, why do you think? What do you think changed for Putin?
0: And it's a really good question. And I must admit, when the invasion happened, at first, my view of thought was, my gosh, you know, are we dealing with a different Putin? Has Putin changed or have we misunderstood him as a person? But again, over time, I thought, well, no, actually. What, what changed was precisely Putin's understanding of the world, shall we say? You know, he had this, this string of military successes, many of which actually went against the odds. I mean, if one looks at, for example, Russia's deployment into Syria, there was a lot, um, particularly like I'm, I'm talking to you now from from Washington, D.C., you know, particularly here in the States, there was a lot of smug prediction that Russia would not actually be able to sustain this operation, that within a month or so, we'd see Russian planes falling out of the sky because they've been badly maintained or the Russians unable to maintain the supplies of ammunition and aviation fuel and so forth that was needed. And yet the Russians carried it out and in their own you know, fairly brutal way. But nonetheless, they, they actually carried out a very, very successful deployment to Syria. So I think on the one hand, you have a case of the Russians in some cases seeming to beat the odds and becoming increasingly militarily powerful. And for Putin, you know, that that gave him an inflated sense of what his forces could do. Secondly, we had had, frankly, Very, very lacklustre Western responses, which in some ways were the the opposite of the sort of time on dictum of speak softly but carry a big stick. We had had a West which so often had harangued and lectured the Russians while doing very little about it. We saw this after the Georgian War, where there was a lot of finger wagging, but then very quickly thereafter, Russia was offered a reset in relations. We saw this after the, the Crimean annexation. Again, a lot of hot air being blown but not really much action. And therefore, Putin had convinced himself that the West really was an alliance of sanctimonious hypocrites who could not be expected to actually do anything serious, particularly if they were presented with a fait accompli. And this is the kind of the the, the final piece. is precisely that Putin had convinced himself that this was going to be a quick and easy military operation. So basically, within two weeks, Ukraine would be under his control. He'd have installed a, a puppet government. And again, you know, it would be a question of just a, a little bit of, of mopping up, nothing more. And the irony is that the very same, again, especially in, in, in America, the very same defense analysts who were most bullish on the idea that Putin would invade were also most bullish that he would quickly win. I mean, they were the ones who were also predicting a, a, you know, a two week triumph. So I think in that context, he felt he had this triumph in his grasp that, that, that Ukraine was a fruit ready to be plucked and that it would be in some ways the crowning glory of his career. He would have then, with, with Belarus, the other neighboring Slavic nation, already in some ways a dependency of Moscow, he would have gathered the three great heartland sort of Slavic nations, Ukraine, Belarus and Russia, into his grasp and that would elevate him into the pantheon of Russian state-building heroes. So almost, I think, from his point of view, although, yes, really, you know, he he havered and worried about what he was going to be doing right up to the last moment. But I think from his point of view, why wouldn't he invade, given that it was going to be so easy and so successful?
1: Having said that, to take the capital of a country that is recognized is a little different. And So uh, the question, perhaps, that I'm asking is, why did Putin fight something that he just couldn't possibly have thought it would be easy? Given given the fact that there are counter-narratives, we've heard from people who feel that all that he was doing was perhaps drawing away Zelensky's troops to the Western frontier, keeping the focus there on Kiev while he uh, conducted his operations in Donetsk and Luhansk and all the way up to the Crimean Peninsula, the question really: Why did that change? Why was he looking to fight, perhaps to take Kiev at a time when that seemed impossible?
0: Well, because actually it didn't seem impossible. And there's uh, a new report out from the Royal United Services Institute in London, very much going at sort of what, what are the uh, initial observations from the war. And although I would question some of its wider political assumptions. But nonetheless, I mean, what actually comes out very clearly is that, yes, the Russians failed to take Kiev, but it wasn't quite as forlorn a hope as some might have thought. I think the idea was precisely that that, that speed would allow them to to roll quickly in, to take control of the government, and then they would be in a position where, where they were holding the capital city. And then I think there was an assumption that, Take the capital and essentially the the country will fall. Now, that was a mistaken assumption. But nonetheless, you know, it it seems to have informed Putin's own thinking, just as, you know, way back at the beginning of the 19th century, when Napoleon invaded Russia, he thought that once he'd taken Moscow, well, the Russians would, would naturally realize that they were beaten and surrender. And of course, they didn't. And Napoleon was eventually forced to withdraw with terrible losses. But I think you know there is often this arrogance that says, well, you know, you you take the political centre and the rest of the of the country will fall. And I think this is an interesting thing. Yes, pe- people can retrospectively try and find other rationales. But if one looks at it in his initial drive on Kiev, Putin wasted so much of the best of his military. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Russians are having such trouble now. That the the special forces, the the paratroopers, you know, all of these, these are the people who are thrown into that first battle for Kyiv and who took terrifying casualties. And, you know, if that was a feint, then it was a phenomenally badly handled and also phenomenally expensive feint for Putin. So, no, I mean, I think these are attempts just to rationalize what clearly was just simply the fact that he made an initial strike for Kyiv, which failed. And once he'd realized it had failed, he had to reorient his war to focus rather on the southeast of Ukraine instead.
1: You made that analogy to Napoleon. And of course, you've made this 19th century analogy for Putin very much, that he does not see power as a factor of economic might or technological prowess, but really of hard power.
0: Very much so. I mean, he is a, a 19th century geopolitician in that exactly a great power is, is a war-fighting power and that that has to be demonstrated. But also, again, this is a very 19th century characteristic. I think he sees the world in essentially colonial terms, that there are two types of country, the country which is able to exert its influence over others and the country that is a victim of such a process. And therefore, I think part of what he's trying to do in Ukraine, because he, look, he genuinely believes, and I think wrongly, but nonetheless genuinely believes that the West is trying to dominate Russia. But in a way, by, by asserting that Ukraine cannot break out of Russia's sphere of influence, in some ways, he's trying to demonstrate that Russia is in the former category, that Russia is, shall we say, an imperial rather than a subject nation.
1: And that's certainly interesting. I see uh, an ambulance going off behind you. I hope you are in a, in a safe place. The fact is, in, in your book, you talk about what he's really learned from each of those wars. I think in Chechnya, just the way he managed the narrative the second time mm-hmm. around is of great interest, particularly at a time when it seems as if even in countries like India and in the U.S., everywhere, the, the narrative management almost seems like winning most of the war. Give us a sense of what you think Putin learned then.
0: Yes, I think from, from Chechnya, I mean, it was a, a case of, of two things, really. One is exactly the control of the narrative is going to be really important. And that meant that uh, you try and ensure that the only journalists who are reporting are the ones who are favorable and such like. But also that it was important to have the right kind of narrative. That just simply saying, we are going to beat the Chechens and we are going to force them back in line because they are part of the Russian Federation, whether they like it or not. Clearly, that doesn't work. That doesn't work for the domestic audience. It doesn't work for the international audience. So this was very much framed instead, again, as a battle against jihad, a battle against Islamic extremists, which was not entirely inaccurate by any means. Chechnya had indeed become a haven for all kinds of insurgency and indeed terrorism. But nonetheless, by focusing on that, he was looking to try and find some kind of narrative that would also have some resonance in, in the West. And I think this is something that we've seen time and again. I mean, if you think of his invasion of Georgia, they, the Russians made a great sort of move to try and ensure that it would be the Georgians who would throw the first punch. So they had their kind of proxy fighters launching all kinds of attacks on Georgian forces to goad President Saakashvili of Georgia into making the first move, which would allow the Russians, who had all their forces gathered and ready, to present themselves as the ones who were just simply stepping in to respond to Georgian aggression. So, you know, each time, in in different ways, his wars have tried to have a, a suitable narrative. And the problem with this current conflict in Ukraine is that in some ways the narrative that they were ready to project was a narrative that was built around the assumption that precisely within a couple of weeks the country would be in their grasp and that they could say that they were stepping in to, in effect, protect the Ukrainians from a corrupt and even sort of fascistic government. But of course, as more and more Ukrainians flocked to the cause of defending their country, they have had to hurriedly, the Russians have had to hurriedly scramble to try and find new narratives, some of which work for some audiences, others that don't. But they certainly lack a kind of the coherence that we've seen in previous narrative conflicts.
1: Absolutely. And one of those narratives, uh, you know, Mark does find some favor in Indian commentary. That we see some sympathy for the Russian assertion that it was NATO's expansion that really made Russia feel more and more threatened. Uh, uh, making the point that if in the 1990s, the post-Soviet compact, if you like, over Ukraine was built on the idea that there would be no change in status quo, which Russia has taken to mean there would be no movement, NATO, and then subsequently we saw NATO almost double in size, taking in countries closer and closer to Russia. And then you look at the 2008 NATO-Bucharest summit, which more or less said Ukraine was now in the waiting list. For NATO countries, uh, there is some. Uh, there, there does seem to be enough evidence that, in fact, Russia was was feeling more and more contained or threatened on its western flank from NATO, and that this uh, war in Ukraine or his actions in Ukraine, uh, perhaps also in Georgia, can be explained that way.
0: I think I've got some sympathy for that view. I mean, and certainly Putin himself. I think genuinely believes that. I mean, there's no way of getting around the fact that Western policy towards Russia has, in many cases, been not just poorly framed, but disastrously counterproductive. If one looks at, at NATO's expansion, I mean, and ultimately NATO is a defensive alliance, and it's not actually as if some shadowy sort of NATO puppet masters in the United States or wherever else have been engineering this expansion. It is actually that the countries in turn themselves wanted the protection of being under uh, the the nato guarantee look i mean i I lived in the czech republic for several years and and from the czech's point of view nato membership was absolutely crucial because they realized they were a small country in as they regarded still dangerous part of the world and they wanted to feel that they had this, this, this guarantee so they pushed hard for it well likewise it's not actually that the ukrainians were being in any way forced into nato quite the opposite they were the ones clamoring NATO was actually, although it gave this sort of vague guarantee that someday Ukraine would be a member, frankly, NATO was really quite sceptical about the idea of of NATO membership for Ukraine. But the point is, often the real issue has been exactly about the messaging, how to convey to Russia what's really going on. By doing this wishy-washy compromise that precisely said, oh no, someday Ukraine will be a member, it gave the Ukrainians false hope. Because actually, NATO really had no such intention if they could avoid it. But on the other hand, to the Russians, seemed to communicate the fact that exactly NATO was on the march and any earlier promises about non-expansion were, you know, just just simply lies and hypocrisy. So it, it was actually the worst of both worlds. And I think often we've seen this, an inability or an unwillingness to actually accept that the Russians have a point of view. It doesn't necessarily mean that the policy needs to be changed. But it's how you engage with the Russians. So often Putin raised his concerns and the points of his anger. And it was written off as people just thinking, well, no, he's just saying that for political reasons. He doesn't genuinely believe that this is all for a domestic audience or whatever else. Rather than actually thinking, no, he was communicating what for him were serious concerns. And Ukraine particularly, look, Ukraine, you know, is it is a separate country, but it is also part of Russia's history. Kiev was the first and the greatest of the cities of the Rus. so you know it matters to someone like putin and at the same time we have a situation in which i mean in 2013 the european union offered uh, an agreement to ukraine about you know beginning to connect their markets more directly which at first the russians were fine with until it took a long time you know someone was pouring through the small print and realized that in effect that would lock ukraine away from Russia and Russia's markets. And again, this was probably just a blunder on the part of the European Union. But once viewed through the Kremlin's rather paranoid perspective, it became a sign that the West was trying to steal Ukraine from Russia. So, look, I mean, I think the substance is much less than the Russians claim, but certainly the West dramatically mishandled its relationship with Russia. And
1: certainly after months and months of bombings on civilians, on on destruction of cities, it becomes more difficult to have that very rational conversation on the origins, perhaps, of the aggression. I do want to ask you, Mark, when you look into your crystal ball, we are a few weeks away from one year of the Russian war in Ukraine. Do you see it ending?
0: Well, I mean, it will end eventually, of course. The question is when And I think what's clear after all is that, you know, Putin's strategy is now based on dragging the war out as long as possible and very demonstratively doing so. We've had the Russians withdrawing from the city of Kherson, which is essentially politically embarrassing, but militarily inevitable. And now they are kind of digging in on a new front line. There's a new flow of mobilized reservists coming in, particularly in spring, up to 150,000 of them. I think the idea is to demonstrate, look, we can keep this up as long as possible. And Putin is hoping to outlast Ukraine's capacity to resist, but perhaps more importantly, the West's capacity and will to support Ukraine. Without the billions of dollars, euros and pounds that are flowing to Ukraine in the form of military assistance, but also economic assistance to keep the economy on life support, it would be very, very difficult for the Ukrainians to continue the, the struggle at the same kind of pitch. So I, I think this is, this is Putin's last hope, is essentially that you know, if, if, if he lasts long enough, then the West will start to get Ukraine fatigue and will begin to put pressure on Kyiv to reach some kind of a deal, a deal that he can then spin at home as a victory. So, I mean, obviously, the Ukrainians are, aren't going to want to go along with this. I'm sure especially come spring, they'll be launching renewed offensives. But we underestimate the Russian capacity, at particularly defensive warfare, at our Cost. So I, I have a nasty feeling that although I don't, you know, obviously, as I said, it's a hard hard war to predict, I don't think it's impossible that in a year's time we'll be having a similar conversation. But at the very earliest, I think that this war isn't going to be coming to any kind of a pitch until after summer.
1: Some, some would say that the moment of the referendums of the annexation of war territories may have been one such victory. And I know I'm asking you not about your present book, but your previous book, which was also a superb read called We Need to Talk About Putin, How the West Gets Him Wrong. But I, I do want to ask you, Mark, you've written in this book as well about this possibly being Putin's last war and even predicting about the possibility of after Putin what. So I, I, so what I do want to ask you is, do you see? Putin's reign itself ending, there have been all these very sort of interesting phrases to say Putin may go, but Putinism will stay. Uh, The idea that that Russia has somehow weathered the Western sanctions that people have not joined, uh, the countries have not joined the West when it comes to the the sanctions on oil and uh, energy and food. But the real question I want to ask you is, how do you see Putin coming out of this entire war?
0: Yes, I mean, Putin himself, I mean, he is a a survivor, and as I said, he is, when it comes down to it, a rational actor. And I don't think we're going to see the kind of nightmare scenarios of him turning to nuclear weapons or or anything like that. I would sort of flip it round and say, in some ways, Putin might survive, but I think Putinism won't. In the sense of a particular model for how you run the country and a, a vision for Russia's place in the world, I think that's crumbled Russia is no longer going to be a a military great power anymore. It'll take at least a decade to reconstitute Russia's forces that have been destroyed over the past, less less than a year. Putin himself, though, I mean, look, although, yes, he's 70 years old, he may have health problems, there's all sorts of lurid rumours doing the rounds, but I think we need to treat those with considerable caution. But nonetheless, this is a man who who is getting on in, in a highly sort of complex and stressful environment. If Things go disastrously badly. It is possible that, that, that Putin will be forced to step down. I think it's more, though, that this is not a regime which looks in any way on the you know cusp of imminent collapse. It's more that I think that it, it's losing so much of its kind of spare capacity, its resilience. You know, the, the economic sanctions, of course, they've not crashed the Russian economy the way some people claimed. But nonetheless, they absolutely are grinding away at it. We're seeing likely to be a, a 5% drop in GDP in the coming year, for example, and a a larger and larger share of the state budget is having to go on the war and internal security. We're seeing clearly a population which is getting uncomfortable. The most recent polling data has shown that more than half of Russians actually would like to see some kind of negotiations to end the war. And we're also seeing an elite itself, which is unhappy, not least because look, these are on the whole pragmatic, ruthless kleptocrats. They enjoyed the days when they could steal at home, spend and bank abroad. And now they're feeling sort of you know, locked in, and they're not quite sure about what, what the future holds. None of this is, in and of itself will bring Putin down. But it means that if there is some kind of a crisis, which could be anything, it could be you know, economically driven street protests. It could be a collapse of the front line in Ukraine. It could be serious illness on the part of Putin. But in those circumstances, I think the system will be much less able to weather it. But the point is look, regimes can be pretty much brain dead and still survive for years. Maybe the Soviet Union did. Tsarist Russia did for years. It it took the hammer blow of World War I to bring Tsarism down. And that was a lot more serious a blow than the Russians are taking in Ukraine. So, you know, I I, I think we are in the the kind of the, the, the closing dying years of Putin and Putinism. But That doesn't mean to say it's necessarily going to be quick.
1: Right. There are many more such insights in Mark Galliotti's book, Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Mark, thanks so much for speaking to us at, at The Hindu.
0: My great pleasure.
1: And if you've been listening to The Hindus on Books podcast, thanks very much. Do join us again.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcast such as In Focus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at Sockmed4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in.